Hello. Good evening and welcome to Brixton Book Jam. We've got a very varied selection of writers this evening. I hope you're going to enjoy the evening. First up, we have Angela Wilson, who's a comedy writer, and her sitcom Open Wide was shortlisted for the BAFTA Rockcliffe Comedy Writing Award. She regularly collaborates with comedy sister act Gavin and Gavin and is co-writing two original scripts currently in development with TV production company Channel X. She'll be reading an early excerpt of one her one-woman show, My Mum, The Chemo Ninja, which I think if you look around on your table, she may have a, a flyer. Adapted from her award-nominated blog, Funny Matters, and premiering at the Brighton Fringe Festival this May. For more information, you can visit funnymatters.co.uk or take a flyer from the bookstore. Please welcome to the stage, Angela Wilson. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. I'd received the letter months before. I was so excited. I'd been called up. Two weeks of jury service. A paid holiday from my soul-destroying office job. VIP access to a world of intrigue, theatricality, and a chance to watch straight men wear wigs. I pictured Bergerac meets Madame Jojo's. Plus, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a judge to right the wrongs of the world, to eradicate crime, immorality, cheating at rounders. I'd been called to Southwark Crown Court, a biggie. It was during that time, all of those high-profile expense scandal trials, the police was abuzz with press, cameras flashing police cordons, journos perched like budgies up stepladders waiting ready for their money shot. In normal circumstances, it would have been exciting, glamorous. But just days before jury service, everything had changed. As I arrived from my first day at court, the camera bulbs flashed in my face. Pebble dash. That was the word the consultant had used, pebble dash. He smiled so much, his eyes crinkled up, greeting me and mum like new neighbours, with forced jocularity and much shaking of hands, warm, cheery, in an I'll look after your spare key if you look after mine kind of a way. Very smart, jaunty pink shirt and tie clip smart. My hand was on mum's lap, holding hers, frozen like something ancient dug out of a peat bog. Pebble dash, he'd said, across both lungs. Back in the courtroom, I'd been put on one of those expense scandal trials. We were told not to communicate in any way at all with the judge. I'm not sure if that's a judge thing or whether he was just a diva. He could have had a whole mini bar of only green Haribo in his chambers or maybe his own wig room like Cher. Our mouthpiece to the judge was our supervisor, the court clerk. Oh, was she a scary woman? As mum would have said, the type you wouldn't want to meet down a dark alley. Mum. Pebble dash. The consultant had kept the smiley, crinkly eye thing to deliver the news. Stage four. It's inoperable. Incurable. Twelve months, maybe eighteen if you're lucky. Yes, lucky. Mum and I both noticed his fingernails. 
Oh dear, maybe problems with his girlfriend, she'd said when we came out. He's bitten his nails right down with worry. You'd have thought she'd have other things on her mind, but no, she always loved to puzzle. The doors at Southwark Crown Court are tinted, which means the press outside can't see who's about to come out. Oh, those poor reporters. It's such a pickle for them. I mean, when do they know when to take a photo? They don't want to miss their shot. Fortunately for them, though, they worked it out. Every time the door opens, just go ballistic, just in case it's someone important. A lot of times, it wasn't. It was just me. Shell-shocked, grief-stricken me. Can I just say, I have quite big eyes. At the best of times, I look like a rabbit caught in headlights. I don't need any help in that department. Not from oncologists telling me the unimaginable about my mum, and not from reporters adding to my nightmare by trying to blind me with flashbulbs. I'd come out of the door, photographers would leap to action, lenses point at me like snipers, lights explode in my face, there's a rush of adrenaline, and then they realise, no, I'm not an MP with a second home, or an elite Scotland Yard DCI with an Amex problem. I'm just some freckly bird who looks like Richard Hammond. And then they'd all stand down, disappointed in me. Talk about kick me when I'm down. Mr. Jaunty Pink Shirt had said that mum was the epitome of good health. Stupidly, I felt relieved. Good health. He just said that. Good health. Hang on a sec. It, inside my head, there were desperate computations going on. I felt like that bloke from Beautiful Mind. Shirt sleeves rolled up, rolled up. Sweat flying as the chalk urgently scratches away at the blackboard. It just didn't make sense. Every calculation delivered the same result. Data error. She sat next to me, the epitome of good health, my mum, just as she was before. The same lovely mum who was always humming along to nothing, dancing to take that in the kitchen, making my brother and I crack up on a Sunday for saying she'd made us a joint. Her spot-on comedy rendition of Ethel Merman's There's no business like show business and her high-kicking can-can girl competitiveness. I'm double your age, Angie Babes, and I can still kick higher than you. It was true. I blame my tight hamstrings. My mum, who'd never smoked cigarettes in her life, now being diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. On the first day of the court case, the scary court clerk caught me crying in the toilet. Maybe because Southwark Crown Court is the mothership of confessions, but I ended up spewing it all out to her. Mum's diagnosis, our shock, my terror. Turned out she'd lost her dad to the exact same type of lung cancer. Ten years before, a lot of water had passed under a lot of bridges, but she stood in that little toilet in Southwark Crown Court and cried with me. What I enjoyed most, though, was the other jurors' faces when we both came out of the toilet with red swollen eyes. Me, their fellow jury member, and the scary court clerk. I could just see the confusion in their head trying to work. What on earth happened in that toilet? After that, the scary court clerk took me under her wing for the whole trial. She even managed to persuade the judge to suspend court on the days that mum had hospital appointments so I could go with her. 
Mum was too disorientated with her diagnosis to really register the fact this high-profile case was being planned around her oncology schedule. But I know if she had a chance for it to sink in, she'd have been well chuffed. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Next up, we have Lucy Ribchester. She's a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award winner and the debut author of The Hourglass Factory. Her short fiction has been published in journals in the UK and the US and she reviews dance and circus for The List, fest and dance tabs. Most re recently, she has been shortlifted for the Costa Short Story Prize 2015, judged by Victoria Hislop, Fanny Blake and Patrick Gale for The Glassblower's Daughter. Please welcome to the stage, Lucy Ribchester. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to read um, from the prologue of the Hourglass Factory. 14th of April, 1912. London Evening Gazette offices. At 10pm on Stonecutter Street, the Reuters wires begin to tick. Nobby has his head slumped on Mr. Stark's desk and he jumps at the noise. The heavy Morse code girding, the out-of-joint military march. The glass on top of the Reuters machine always shakes because of a loose nut or perhaps the uneven floorboards beneath the desk. He cuts the ticker tape sharp, the way Mr. Stark likes it, no tears or rough edges. And then he blinks. Half an hour earlier, the Royal Albert Hall, London. Ebony Diamond had waited in the dark, her wrists bound tight as shoelaces, her fingers had numbed to blue. The pearls of sweat on her palms were turning the mixture of flour and powder de amour to paste. Behind her, Annie Evans was busy tucking into two neat sacks the crowbar, ropes and chains they had used to split the roof tiles and slink down through the cold rafters. As she packed, she sang gently, the daring young man on the flying trapeze singing lass instead of man. How's he getting on? Annie's eyes were soft, but her smile was frozen with nerves. Ebony didn't answer. She was watching the meeting going on beneath them, the Prime Minister working himself up into his speech. Down below, the moving sea of bowler hats in the auditorium looked like iron filings in a fishbowl. Legs together or legs akimbo don't matter, Ebony's mother had always told her. But for God's sake, keep your arms in or you'll lose one of them. There were rumours that once, at the Crystal Palace, a trapeze artist had landed so sharply on a falling jolt that part of his brain seeped out through his nose. Annie wriggled back into a squat under the low beams. She would hold out here as long as she could, but they would find her too. She hoped she and Ebony would make the same prison van. Ebony checked the binding on her legs, squeezed a handful of flesh into a more comfortable position, ran a thumb over the sailor's knots she had tied and wedged the wooden bar of the trapeze between the hollows of her feet. Annie passed her the banner and she bit its silk 
and grimaced as its slippery perfume coated her teeth. She had done higher leaps than this, and she had felt sick before each of them too. But this time they both had Holloway to look forward to, the hunger strike, the force feeding. Ebony had heard tell that they didn't clean the tube. She pushed away the thought, gave Annie a last look, climbed alone onto the wooden lip of the hole, and she jumped. Nobby watches the details judder in, dribs, drabs, sketches, the color of lace in the woman's bodice, the look on her face as she flew through the air. He crams a jellied pork pie into his mouth as he scans and scans the never-ending tape. It is better than a story in Strand magazine. The facts change. The Prime Minister is dead. The Prime Minister is alive. The woman is a gypsy. The woman is a Londoner. The woman had a famous mother. And as they change, the activity in the office also changes. Reporters dig out obituaries. Men are being dispatched to Bow Street Police Station and the Albert Hall. And all the time the tape ticks and slaps and stamps as if it will never exhaust itself. By the time midnight comes round, the first galley proof is drawn and Nobby is growing bored. The pie is heavy in his stomach and he thinks he might sneak a swallow from Stark's whiskey bottle in the top drawer of his desk while the night editor is out the room. But then the tape starts up again and this time when he looks at it, he doesn't just blink, he cries out. 15th of April, 1912, Clements Inn, Women's Social and Political Union Headquarters, London. Did you get the newspapers? Did you get them all? Is she in it? Tell me she's on the front page. Tell me the London Illustrated have dug out a snap. The woman's arms are outstretched and the sleeves of her blouse hang away from her. On her wrist, a flash of emeralds, amethysts and fresh pearls catches the sunlight through the window. Her friend doesn't smile and this rings a little warning bell. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Lucy. Now, we welcome to the stage Paul McVie, who's written plays, comedy, and short stories, and his writing has been performed around the UK and Ireland, including the Edinburgh Festival. It's been published in journals and anthologies, and it's been commissioned by the BBC Radio 4 and read his work on BBC Radio 5. His debut novel, The Good Son, is out with Salt Publishing, April 2015. Paul is director of Story Salon, and he is judge of short story competitions and taught master classes in the UK, Ireland and Australia. Please welcome to the stage Paul McVie. It's McVeigh. Thank you. Northern Irish. Thank you very much. Start of war. Another one. Um, thank you for being here. I just want to take a moment to say I feel very rock and roll, and I feel like I'm in, in sort of in Glastonbury or something, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm fucking loving it. Thank you. Um, this is uh, my book. It took 10 years, and um, hers is bigger than mine, and I'm a little bit 
cross about that because I'm obviously much older. Anyway, so <coughs> here you go. It's, it's, the only thing you need to know is it's in the voice of a, a young boy. So just in case you think I'm acting a little bit childishly. <laughs> okay. Um, Donnelly, come here, says Mr. Brown. And I do because he's one scary specimen. I've never been in trouble in school because I'm a good boy. Uh, it must be about me going to St. Malachy's Grammar School. Mr. Brown said, it was best not to tell the other boys and finish the sentence with a look if you want to get out of here alive. Mr. Brown is whispering to Mr. McManus, looking very serious. Mr. Brown puts his hand on the back of his head, and on my head, and pushes me into the corridor. I stand in, uh, by the windows, looking out of the tarmac playground, covered in glass and splats of colour from the paint bombs the hard men threw over the walls at night. Reflected in the window, I see Mr. McManus. His hand is over his mouth, staring at his feet. Mr. Brown has one hand in his pocket, and the other is rubbing his baldy head. Something is very wrong. It's like one of those scenes in a film, when someone's being told bad news while the music plays, and we know what they're saying, even if we can't hear the words. Usually, the hero is being told he's terminally ill, or his parents have died in a horrible car crash. We don't have a car, so... Uh, follow me, said Mr. Brown, and I do, but look around at Mr. McManus, who's still at the doorway, smiling at me like I've got leukemia. I think uh, I did have a nosebleed last Christmas, and actually I do feel a little bit dizzy now that I think about it. At the end of the corridor, Mr. Brown's office door is open, and he walks in while I wait outside. I'm now in my hospital bed, the whole family are kneeling by me, crying. Uh, I raise myself up to say, I forgive you all. Even you, Patty. And I smile, touch his head, and then I die. Uh, Come in, Michael, says Mr. Brown, which is the first time in seven years he's actually called me by my first name. Holy shite. Ma and Da are here in their Sunday clothes. This is getting to TV. Sit down, son, says Da, all nice. Hopefully, Mr. Brown can't smell last night's drink under Da's polo minty breath. I sit in the empty chair. Michael, now I know we've spoken about the offer from St. Malachy's, and I want to assure you that we're all extremely proud of you here at the Holy Cross, says Mr. Brown, fidgeting with his papers. You're a big boy now, Michael, and there are things uh, that you just have to understand. He folds his fingers like a cat's cradle and taps the knotted bunch on his desk. He takes a deep breath. Michael, your mum and dad have asked me to talk to you to help you understand that uh, Ma coughs, sits in her chair, and looks at the floor. Unfortunately, Michael, you're not able able to go to St. Malachy's. Uh, Mr. Brown's mouth keeps moving, but there's no sound. Concentrate, Mickey. Don't space out, I tell myself. I hear something about five years, trips, uniforms and books, and two buses there and back. But I love buses, I say, looking at my mummy to back me up, but she's staring at Mr. Brown, who gets up from his seat and plays with the blinds, all while talking. My breathing is loud in my ears and I keep missing what he's saying, like when our Paddy turns up the sound up and down on the television just to annoy me. Your mummy and daddy can't afford it, Michael. They feel terrible, Mr. Brown says. Matt's face is purple. She's not going to say anything and whatever is jamming the sound in my head is messing with my powers. Um, And it could be the aliens or the Russians, but most likely it's the Protestants. (laughs) Now, you'll be able to go to St. Gabriel's Secondary school, uh, just like Paddy, Dad smiles, putting his disgusting orangey-brown fag-burnt fingers on my shoulder. 
He means wear Paddy's old uniforms, like I've done my whole life. Paddy's old everything, even his bloody trunks. I look at Da and know with absolute certainty this man is not my father. Just as I know by the smallness of his eyes that it is all his fault because everything bad that has ever happened to our family is because of him. We'll see ourselves out, sir, says Da, holding out his hand, acting like he doesn't want to cause any trouble when that's all he's ever done. You can take Michael home with you, you know, help him through the transition, says Mr. Brown. No, I'm sure he'd rather be here, playing with his friends, wouldn't you, son, says Da. Friend, one friend, that's how much he knows. And no, actually, I would like to go home, I say. No problem, says Mr. Brown, looking pale and walking out the door. I get your school bag. Silence. We all stare out the window and watch the sun come out from behind a big fuzzy felt cloud. All three of us squint and turn our heads, making sure we don't catch each other's eyes. I start to Mickey, he sighs into the sandpaper shuffle of his hand along his stubble. I've got a big surprise for you. It's coming tonight. I look at that stupid grin in his face and I check Ma and she hasn't got a bloody clue. He's a big liar. Ma nods to me, then nods towards Da, like open her eyes wide, like, you know, this means, please, Mickey, play along with your Da for me, otherwise you'll know what'll happen if you don't. And okay, Ma, just for you. I know we have no money and I'd never scun to you about it. A big surprise! Wow, I say, like some kid on the TV. I look out the window, then it descends upon me like the Holy Spirit. It's a God! It's a, it's a, it's a God, is it a dog? It's a dog, Daddy, isn't it? You got me a dog! I'm so happy! This makes up for everything! Ha, that won him. And I smile at Ma like I've no idea what I've just done. She said no to a dog since I was five. She's going to break every single bone in my body. But at least then I won't have to go to St. Gabriel's Secondary School. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Mr. McVeigh. Next up on the stage, we have Ben Byrne who was born in London and studied drama and film at the University of Manchester. He later lived in San Francisco, New York and Tokyo, working as a consultant, filmmaker and musician. He returned to England to dedicate himself more fully to writing and his short fiction has appeared in Literal Magazine and Writer's Hub. His first novel, Fire Flowers, was published by Europa Editions in the UK and US in February 2015, having originally been published as Fireflies by House of Anansi Press in Canada in October 2013. He lives in the East End of London. Please welcome to the stage Ben Byrne. Thank you everybody, thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here um, to, uh, to take my place amongst these other writers. I'm going to be reading a short extract from my first novel, Fireflowers. Um, we've got another young boy here. Um, it's not as funny as the last one, unfortunately. Uh, it's 1945 and Hiroshi is a 13-year-old boy who has lost his family and he believes his big sister in the fire raids that have devastated Tokyo earlier on that year before Japan's surrender to the Allies. 
He's now living hand to fist on the streets of Tokyo where he leads a small band of street children who he's come across from his old neighbourhood. Um, they're starving to death at the moment and trying to make ends meet any way they can. Chapter 14, Unagi. From where Koji and I sat on the stone bank of the canal, Mount Fuji was just visible between beyond the ruins of the city, its peaks sprinkled with snow. We had set off that morning with our bamboo fishing rods, crossed the Kotatoi Bridge and made our way up to the lock with its little castle keep. Our lines were hooked with chicken gizzards, dangling now in the black depths of the water, the slick surface glistening with rainbow whirls of oil. We were fishing for eels. My father's shop had sold eel, of course. The rich, sweet aroma had infused my childhood. The shop had been popular with the patrons of the theatres and cabarets that lined the streets of Asakusa, a regular haunt of the stagehands, theatre managers and actors who came in at odd times of the day for snacks and a glass of sake between shows. My father was a true fan of the kabuki theatre himself, the rough and tumble style popular in Tokyo back then, and prints of the Danjuros, the famous dynasty of actors, were plastered all over the walls. He liked nothing better than to banter with the customers about famous performances of the past, cracking jokes in that gruff, smart way that Tokyo people like, steaming and grilling the strips of eel all the while. He brushed them with a thick, secret sauce from his famous pot, an earthenware thing he had inherited from his own father, bound with wire, sticky and smeared from generations of service. As he stood there, surrounded by smoke and fire, he looked almost like a character from a kabuki play himself, one of the wilier, earthier types. Ours was an old-fashioned shop, in that the live eels were kept in a big glass tank at the front by the street. My mother skinned them on a block. She pinned them through the head, tore away the slimy skin with a swift movement, pulling out the backbone and slicing the fillet into strips in an instant. I sometimes pressed my face up against the glass, watched the animals flap their fins and slip around each other, glistening as if they had been freshly coated with lacquer. My father once told me that every eel in the world was born in the same place, out in the middle of some distant ocean. I dreamed about the place sometimes, the sea crashing as the glassy elvers drifted away to be tugged apart from each other by the ocean currents. The first day my father took me to the Kabuki Theatre was a day after the Pacific War had broken out. Our headmaster had gathered us in the assembly hall of my school and we'd nudged each other, trying not to laugh, because Sensei had tears streaming down his cheeks. Children, he said, his voice wavering, Japan has entered the great war against America and Britain at last. Banzai! We were thrilled, of course. We could hardly believe Japan had actually gone and done it. Our country was going to annihilate the enemy. That afternoon, our teacher unrolled a huge map of the Pacific Ocean and we pinned it up on the classroom wall. We spent the lesson searching for Honolulu and stuck on a little rising sun flag when we finally found it. The next morning, my mother was washing my father with warm water from the cedar tub in the kitchen. She passed the cloth over his muscly back, toweled him down and helped him dress in his yukata. She arranged my clothes and brushed my hair as the radio burbled away with another excited report of the glorious attack. I noticed that she and my sister Satsuko 
were still dressed in their normal work coats and aprons. Why aren't you getting ready, Mum? I asked. Your mother and sister aren't coming, my father said with a wink. It's just us men today. Us men? I was beside myself with excitement as we made our way into the theatre, blazing with lanterns filled with delicious smells. His big hand gripped mine as the patrons called out to him, sprawled in their boxes with bentos and bottles of sake laid out in preparation for a good long afternoon's entertainment ahead. When my father told them that I was his son, they studied me with approval, remarking on my dark eyes and declaring that I had the ferocious glower of a Dan Giorgio myself, which made my father's face crinkle with pleasure. We took our place in the centre of the hall and he set out some rice crackers for us to nibble on. The national anthem played a deafening volume and there was a loud bang and the lights went out. I seized my father by the arm. He laughed uproariously as a, crowd, a cloud of smoke billowed on the stage. I smiled at him in bashful excitement as we settled back to watch the play. There were flashing lights and sudden explosions, the wail of horns and voices and clouds of colourful smoke. As the actors came upon the stage, the men cried out and the audience all roared with approval. At the climax, the clappers rang out and the audience exploded, pounding the sides of their boxes as the actors pulled their faces into ferocious, cross-eyed tableau. Afterward, everyone spilled out into the light of the bustling evening to eat and drink amongst the stalls and shops and I rubbed my eyes as if I was emerging from a dream. Then, later, somehow, it all went wrong. A few years after and rice was being rationed and the fishmonger in the corner had gone out of business and finally my father was forced to close the restaurant. The women from the Neighbourhood Association came around the next day and asked him to donate his grills to the military as they were made from such good iron. Let's send just one more plane to the front. Then the real tragedy occurred. The fire raids began, the theatres were shut down and my father's last pleasure in life was taken away. His call-up papers arrived soon after that. On the evening of his purification ceremony, we ate a solemn meal of sea bream and red rice. Afterward... My father put a lid on his ancient pot of sauce and sealed it with wax. He wrapped it in oilcloth, placed it in a cedar box which he stood in the alcove by the family altar. As we stood before it, he put his hands on my shoulders, rubbing them over and over. Take care of that until I get back, Hiroshi-kun. Do you hear me? I nodded. He pointed at the box. That's our only family treasure. My father heated a kit bag onto the train at Ueno Station the next day. He was going to report at the Yokosuka Air Naval Base. He squatted down on the platform before he boarded, embraced me tightly as the platform guard blew his whistle. Remember what I told you, he whispered. I nodded. I promise, Dad, I said. I'm counting on you, Hiroshi-kun. There was a shriek from the locomotive as the wheels began to turn. The train pulled away from the platform. He leaned out the carriage window for a moment and waved his fighting cap. And then he was gone. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I'm just going to take a moment now to mention that we have the book sale in the corner there with Emma and Sheila. 
And also, if you look on your uh, tables, you'll probably find there's a load of these leaflets knocking around. Uh, Save the libraries. There's a, a meeting Wednesday, 11th of March, Brixton Library, 7 p.m. There's also um, a leaflet about an introduction to Bookaid International and one that says, I, I love my library and I like to love librarians. Uh, so, um, yeah, check out the bookstall. There are big discounts and also you may get a book signed. So, you know, it's well worth it. I'd like to welcome to the stage now our own Rally Rye from Greenwich Village, New York City, who performed a three-minute short story in song from his upcoming album, The Adventures of Rally Rye in Dixie. Please welcome to the stage, Rally Rye. The record coming out is, um, it has lots of tunes that encompass the lifestyle of people of the South with religion, the struggle between God and Satan and, and Pentecostal tent shows, um, and uh, all these songs from my own experiences I've written as well as through reading um, lots of Southern authors, Faulkner, Tennessee Williams, uh, McCulloch. And um, I'm gonna play you one, one number, which I don't know which one to play, because there's 11 of them. But I think I'll play this one called Low, I Did Ramble. Just the sound of the wind through the trees and the music of the South and the way it is. Uh, but it, it, it pretty much encompasses uh, that whole style. So here we go. Passing through, I 
can say and see it with second sight From the Golden Gate to the Caroline Hellhounds nipping at my boots I'm the wind blowing through the cold dark pines From the north through Mason-Dixon line Cane sealed his fate As a youth, stranger in your town, passing through. I've seen ceremonies in the fields, chain gangs, backroom deals, connect the strands old and new. Is that my opinion? No, but them thoughts just kind of make me slow. I got all the time. In Nothing aloof And when I'm laid to rest at last Down that thorny flint paper I might not even leave a print For my boots No, I did ramble All my life since I was a youth Every day is a different town, y'all Yeah, um, Riley Rye, it will be coming out. I've got a double A side on uh, April 29th, a little French label called Chow Ketchup. But yeah, friend it on Facebook, have a listen. A lot of the tunes are really interesting. They're three minutes, all of them three minutes, maybe 310, whatever. But it talks about uh, stories from... Sounds like New Orleans, sounds like Memphis, Tennessee. It's a good listen. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Rally Rye. Uh, we're just going to take a 15 minute break, so um, if you need to smoke, whatever you need to do. See us back here in 15 minutes. We're at the next set, which is uh, coming up for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 